there is a, a unique impact um, psychologically and on the brain from hearing the human voice as opposed to any other melodious sound, whether that's an instrument or uh, an animal producing melodic sound. As a uniquely human activity that connects us body and soul species, there is nothing simpler and there is nothing kinder and there is nothing more sweet than sharing your voice. Hi there and welcome to This Is Why We Sing, a podcast with me, James Sills, that's all about the transformative power of singing. It's really great to have you here. In this series, I'm looking at why singing helps us to feel more human. It can help us feel more connected. It can help us to lead happier and healthier lives. And I don't want you just to take my word for it. I've been speaking to composers and authors, choir leaders, and today, a music psychologist to help explain the phenomenon of singing. Today's guest is Dr. Victoria Williamson, and I've been a big admirer of her work for almost 10 years after reading her book, You Are the Music, How Music Reveals What It Means to Be Human. She's an academic and a writer, and she also appears regularly on radio and television to help explain the effect that music has on us, both as listeners and performers. This is a conversation that I've been dying to have for many, many years. And the podcast gave me the perfect opportunity to contact Victoria. We talked about so many things that I think you'll find absolutely fascinating, such as the global phenomenon of earworms, her research into amusia, also known as tone deafness, and, and what the implications are for singing. We also talk about, more broadly, the relationship between music and well-being, why the human voice is so powerful, and much, much more. I really think there's something in here for everybody. And if you've ever been intrigued by the effect of music on the brain, this is the conversation for you. We recorded this in lockdown in March, 2021, myself in North Wales and Vicky in Barcelona. So welcome Vicky to the podcast. It's really exciting to have you here. It's my pleasure. First question that I ask everybody is what song's in your head right now? So this morning I have been doing some household jobs, some normal things of mum of two little ones, lots of folding, lots of cleaning, lots of picking up toys. And I've had um, a song called, a track called Key to My Kingdom, which is a B.B. King track going round and round. I think it's just a nice rhythm to, uh, to be doing all of this. Has it got that kind of dum 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 fold this, put this away. It's kind of keeping you moving along. the key. To my kingdom and your love is my crown. And you just you carry on. It's fantastic. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. Do you know, it's always such an illuminating question um, asking people that, you know, because it, it's really insightful, actually, and tells us a lot about the role that songs, you know, kind of play in our everyday lives. But I believe that you've done some research um into earworms and why certain songs get lodged in our heads and so you might be able to explain this away for us a little bit oh i wish i could explain it away wouldn't that be a wonderful (laughs) thing um so my research started from a point of very little scientific knowledge There there were very few studies of earworms in the literature when we got started and that's always been the tradition in psychology this that anything that looks at 
imagery at essentially what's going on as a perception inside our minds, people tend to shy away from because it's very mm. hard. It relies on um, our interpretation, our descriptions, and then you're studying that. So it gets a bit far removed from the actual experience for a lot of psychologists. But I thought it's such an everyday experience. People are bound to um, have wonderful stories. We didn't even know how widespread it was, uh, what the variety of the song was, whether there was an easy way to explain musically what was getting stuck. So. We started with big population surveys um, worldwide, trying to work out how many people experienced this. And there was a, a lovely um, academic in Finland called Lassie Likonen who started at basically the same time. You know how often in science two people are doing the same thing at kind of the same time. Mm. And so we joined forces and we were able to do lots of great work together. And we found that this experience is ubiquitous. It does happen all over the world. Lots of cultures have different names for it. But this idea of a snippet of music coming unbidden to the mind and then going on repeat outside of conscious control, just about every culture recognises that phenomenon. There will always be a few people who say, I've never had that happen to me. So it doesn't happen to every single human being. But the vast majority, we're talking 90, 95%, depending on the country, will say, yep, yeah. that happens to me on a fairly regular basis so you're talking there about you know the, the difficulty i guess of of doing what you do um as a music psychologist you know in in terms of kind of you know tying together these experiences that people have with what's going on in the brain maybe you could just explain a little bit about what a music psychologist actually is because we've on, on the podcast you know podcast we've had choir leaders and composers and songwriters and authors but it'd be really interesting to find out exactly yeah what a music psychologist is and does so music psychology as a, as a discipline is fairly young. It has its roots in the sort of 1930s and 40s when people were trying to understand uh, the roots of a lot of human intelligences. What is it that makes certain people good at certain things and not others? Um, so that's when people like Carl Seashaw started to investigate uh, what is it that makes some people appear to be very musical when young and others not so much. In the 60s and 70s, the sort of grandmothers of the discipline were people like Carol Grumhansel and Diana Deutsche who were in the States, and they started to investigate um, the, the psychological reality of music in our minds. Why is it that certain tones are so prominent? How is it that we come to understand scales? Uh, why is it that our memories work in certain ways? So those uh, studies started to gain some traction. And mm. then to, in the late 80s and early 90s, when neuroimaging took off, we were able to start hunting for music in the brain. And that's when everything kind of exploded. That's because... when it gets exciting. So neuroimaging, is that when we see those pictures of the brain with the different colours lighting up with different... Exactly. So yeah. it basically means um, taking an image of the brain. And you can do that in various ways. You can look at it uh, almost like an x-ray and you mm -hmm. can look at the structure of someone's brain you can say i'll take a musician and a non-musician what is it about the structures of their brain that might be different that's one way right. to do it then you can do it where you're sort of looking at an x-ray but it's an x-ray that lights up in different colors that's the type of scan which is looking at where the brain is using oxygen during a task so what parts of the brain are basically likely to be active or engaged in whatever stimulus is going on. Mm. And then you can say, 
okay, when somebody is listening to this type of music, what parts of the brain light up as opposed to their very favorite bit of music, for example. So you can look at the active processing of music. And then finally, there's the electrical activity of the brain. So that's the very, very quick responses of everything from the brain stem up, where you can see in microsecond time, what is the different reaction across the brain as music is unfolding. Wow. And you say it's a relatively new discipline, but I imagine the scope must be absolutely massive. Mm. Absolutely. So psychology is the understanding of human um, mind and behaviour. And music psychology is the understanding of all of our mind and our behaviours that involve music. So you can do that across the whole of the human lifespan. You can do it cross-culturally. You can look at the brain. You can look at the body-brain interaction. I mean, whatever tool you enjoy and whatever musical environment or age of life is your bag, there's something for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And just talking about across the lifespan, I've got to um, do a shout out for your fantastic book, Um you are the music, how music reveals what it means to be human. And I, I really love the way in the book, Victoria, how you kind of take uh, the reader through every life stage, you know, starting, you know, before birth, you know, when we're, you know, abs- absorbing music in the womb right through to the very end of life. It's a really, really fascinating um, guide that I'd really recommend to anybody who wants to understand, you know, the effect that music has on us. Um so thank you for that. It's um, It was really, really illuminating for me um, to look at it in that way, because it, it, in my work as a singing leader, you know, I'm trying to put forward the view that, that, you know, not just music is for everybody in terms of engaging it and performing, but 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 singing. Um, and uh, one of the one of the biggest things I hear the most is when when I have these conversations with people, one of the first things that people often say is, oh, well, you know, there's no way that I can sing because I'm tone deaf. Mm. Um, and um, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about this concept of tone deafness and the technical term is amusia, is that right? Yes. Um, so congenital amusia is um, a, a human experience that I have investigated as well. Um so the idea of tone deafness, that's thats the sort of colloquial term that we use. And some of the first studies um, sought to understand what is the difference between the number of people who state that they are tone deaf and the people who actually have a music processing difficulty. And mm. you can almost consider this to be uh, akin to other processing difficulties with stimuli in the world, whether that's dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysphasia, or prosopagnosia, which is the difficulty in, in um, developing an understanding for the human face. Right. So there's all kinds of stimuli out there where, for whatever reason, the brain develops in a way where the processing of that stimulus is difficult for the person. And amusia should be dysmusia, in my opinion, because amusia implies lack of music. A musics don't completely lack music. There's a difficulty, there's a disturbance in the processing within their brain. Um, So one of the first studies gathered a large population from an American college and said, okay, how many of you guys are tone deaf? Oh, a few hands went up. You know, somewhere between 15 to 20% of the kids put their hand up and say, yes, yeah. That's interesting. You know, the people I meet, you know, just kind of regularly day to day, 
I would say, almost like 50%. As soon as they hear that you're someone who gets people singing, oh, I'm tone deaf. Oh, you yeah. Know? That's that's <laughs> a different thing. That's like, don't make me sing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's maybe that's it. That's true. Yeah. But but so it's quite a, a significant people, you know, identified. Yeah. Um, Somewhere with, around with a fifth that. to a quarter, depending mm-hmm. on the size right. sample of people. So can you guess what proportion of those students actually appeared to measure as being congenital music when they were tested with the yeah. Montreal battery for the evaluation of amusia? How many? I suspect it's very, very small. Um, so I don't know, maybe say 5%? Very good 5%. guess, yeah. Between 4 and yeah. 5%. Yeah. Which is, so which is completely sort of in line with some of um, the other processing difficulties like prosopagnosia. It tends to be somewhere between 3 to 5% of the population right. will actually score below the cutoff that they have a significant um, processing difficulty in that area. And so if we look at how this would then affect people engaging in singing, mm-hmm. what, what would, what, what's the barrier that, if, that, you know, um, that that would create? So a congenital amusia, um, I, I should also mention it's, it's possible to have acquired amusia. And actually mm-hmm. the, the difference is congenital, somebody has always had a disrupted relationship with music as long as they can remember. Somebody with acquired amusia had a normal, for them, relationship with music up to a certain point where something happened. And this could be a brain injury, it could be a stroke, it could be a serious illness that affected the brain. And from then on, there is a disruption to their music right. processing. Right, and so, so, so the, the, with the acquired amusia, it's not that they've just, you know, had a very kind of barren musical life and, and you know, those parts of the brain switch off. It's something... Um, physical, some physical changes that have happened. Exactly, that, that's, right. that's okay. acquired amusia. And mm. acquired amusia is a fairly common symptom in the first few days after stroke, actually. It's very common right. for people to believe that music sounds weird or to struggle with the processing, understanding even the production of musical sound. It's also one of the most common to recover from as well. Right, okay. Um, so there's a higher proportion of acquired, acquired amusia in the population at any one point. But because it's a sudden onset illness thing, you never you never know how many people are going to recover from that. Sure. Congenital amusics don't necessarily have a dearth of exposure to music in their childhood that could explain it. We found many mm. congenital amusics who actually came from incredibly musical cultures and societies. I'm thinking of a family in Ireland that we got uh, very close to at some point, uh, where some of the family members, some of the siblings were incredibly musical and took part in community music and music was just all around them. But despite this, you know, quite heavy exposure to music growing up, they they weren't able to process it. And for that reason, they weren't able to enjoy it for the most part. But congenital music is first and foremost a perception problem. So mm-hmm. what's what's being perceived isn't right. right. So, it's what, so it's what's going into the ears. Exactly. So yeah. people will say the singing is wrong, but that's because there's no feedback, corrective feedback coming in that could let the person know it's wrong. If somebody comes to you and say, I am an absolutely terrible singer, I bet my bottom dollar they're not in a music. And a music is far more likely to come to you and say, everybody tells me I'm a terrible singer. I don't know one way or the other. But I can't tell because I don't, I'm not able to process those sounds in a way that would tell me I'm terrible. Right. Right. Interesting. So it's like, I'm trying to remember, it's that, that those kind of stages of learning, isn't it? You know, so you kind of have the, 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 
when you're always, you know, you're unconsciously incompetent and then you're consciously incompetent. I'm trying to remember who, where that's from. But is, is, is that kind of a lame, you know, for me, like a layman's term of explaining that? So if you have congenital amusia, you're not conscious that, 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 that you know, that, that, you, that you're you not able to sing well. Whereas if, if, you know, you're not affected by that and you may be out of practice or, or you need a bit of guidance, then you are aware that, that your voice doesn't match up to what your expectation is. And, and what you're hearing around you. Yeah. If, if, you're, yeah. if you're very aware, if you're able to reflect on your own sound and, and, and compare it to what you hear around you, then your mm-hmm. perception is probably working pretty well. And it's more to do with, say, vocal strength, confidence. Somebody's knocked you down at some point, said you can't sing. So you haven't really had time to develop um, those feedback skills. We did a lovely study with a master's student um, in Goldsmiths at the University of London, Sue, who's an absolutely wonderful singing teacher. She had um, absolute pitch and she was so empathetic and, and so encouraging. And she took some of the, the, it was actually a group of ladies in the end, um, not by design, just happened. They volunteered. Yes, I'd like to try singing. Mm. And um, it was really fascinating, actually, because they loved being together in a social, they'd never met, because it's quite rare, they'd never met anybody with congenital amnesia before. So the half a dozen of them together, they were, they were, they were mm. really sparking and they really enjoyed the singing lessons that Sue gave them. Um, and we did see an improvement in some of them, in some of their singing when, right. when, when we were measuring things like their pitching and, and, uh-huh. and things like that. Uh, what didn't improve was their scores on the Montreal Battery for the Evaluation of Amusia. So having singing lessons didn't improve their amusia per se, but mm-hmm. the sound that they were making was, for many of them, improving. And the most interesting thing about that is that um, we talked about it a lot, and my favourite theory that came out of it was actually they were learning alternative feedback measures. They were learning to recognise different ways to assess whether their singing was likely to be good or bad. That could be they were monitoring the musculature in the throat or the use of their mouth, or they were getting around the perception issue, mm, essentially. Interesting. Wow, so interesting. Well, that, that gives me a whole list of things I can say to people now when they come approach me and they said, I can't sing because I'm tone deaf. So, well, have you, have you considered this? Um, and one thing you mentioned there, uh, you know, why people may be apprehensive about singing is that, you know, it may be that, that something that was said to them, you know, um, uh, when they were younger. And this is, again, something that I come across a lot in my work. You know, it could be a teacher or it could be a family member. Right. And they might only need to hear it once. And yeah. then that's enough to turn them off singing. So wh- why is that, do you think, like, Victoria? I mean, wh- why... Do we take that so personally to the point that, you know, a lot of people just simply stop singing? It's it's a very strong aversion reaction, isn't it? It's, it's almost like, uh, it reminds me of food aversions. You know, if you're eating something as a child and you become ill, even by coincidence, you might have a stomach bug. The child will never eat that food again. It just mm. takes once to, to, to that aversion response to be so strong. Um, I think singing is very natural for children. I say my my two little ones are singing all the time, whether or not they're aware of it. They're they're running little tunes um, through their head. So to be told that that isn't good enough is is 
is probably strikes very to the core of, of something that's that's fundamental to the way that they've started to learn and interact with their environment. Suddenly they're told you're not doing it right. And because right, because we're valid. vocal, yeah, because we're vocal, it's just easy enough to say, well, I won't do that vocal activity. I can talk mm. and you understand me and and things like that. I just, it's easy enough not to do. It is really interesting, isn't it? Because my kids are very similar age to yours and, you know, mine are very much at the stage where they're just really exploring like the whole sound world and kind of singing is part of that but I don't know whether they necessarily think of singing as something that's particularly separate from everything mm-hmm. else and you just kind of want to keep them in this space where you know it's not just singing it's kind of just creativity mm. and, you know and all these things that that somehow you know I'm thinking of that you know that great Ken Robinson TED talk you know where he, he talks about these things kind of gradually being you know almost squeezed out of us as we get older and, mm. and, and that's you know, for me, that that's that's so sad, you know, because you're just turning off these really important facets of what it means to be human, you know, whether, whether it's singing or, or whether it's um, whether it's creativity, you know, it's so fundamental to our, you know, to our, our well-being, which I know is is, is an area that, that you're particularly interested in. You know, we said that music psychology is an incredible, you know, such a broad scope. Right. But I know that kind of music and wellness and well-being is something that you're particularly interested in. Is that right? Yes, over the years I've become I've become more so. Yes, I started as a very um, what's the what would be the appropriate term straight laced reductionist psychologist. That was my training, very classical psychology uh, experiments in the lab, and I slowly moved out into the real world, and um, it was it was impossible to not be captivated by and fascinated by the potential well-being benefits of, of of music and as you say these these may be things that we have within us to to do for our own well-being and we do we listen to music um but the interactive part of music the social part of music the performance part of music really somehow gets taken out of life quite early on depending on right. the education system mm. and we through sort of lack of exposure and practice I suppose it becomes less of an intuitive oh why don't I just sing you know it's right. exactly. I'm not feeling right why don't I belt out a few numbers and see if I feel a bit better after that yeah. um, we get used to listening to music and and sort of being insular in that way with our with our music but uh the creative, the creation, the exploration, the sound production, that, that does get minimised. But when we look at how music is used for well-being, whether it's um, as in a medical setting, and that might be musicians who are specially trained to work in care, all the way through to music therapists who are operating in a professional therapeutic uh, forum, with the appropriate training and, and guidance in order to work pr- properly with clients with a mm, range. Right. I mean, you see them in neonatal units in hospitals. You see them helping people recovering from stroke. You see them working with nonverbal um, autistic spectrum children all the way through to end of life care and coma. And I've seen musicians and music therapists work in all these environments. And I'm just uh, fascinated by the impact that they have. And if I can do nothing else, it's very hard to study, obviously, um, in most cases. You're trying to capture something and measure something that's 
not only multifaceted, but so individual. But if I can do nothing else, hopefully in my position of illuminating these circumstances, I can advocate that this part of our creative world, and this is within the vast, vast majority of us, is, is there. It's right there as an opportunity to enhance wellness. So let's get Absolutely. on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yes. And But I also think you're advocating it in a really brilliant way because obviously you're, you're coming from, from your kind of academic background. But, you know, I think I first heard you, you were you know, talking on Six Music and then obviously mm. your book <laughs> and your TED Talks. And I think that's it's really fantastic that your message is getting out there, but not isn't just you know isn't isn't confined to the world of academia, which is obviously very important in itself. But but you know to to get this message out because you know well being is something that affects all of us. I mean, would it be useful just to to define what we mean by well being because it's a word that's become even more. Mm-hmm you know um kind of in vogue or, or whatever the last few years like, i mean you, you you used it in your book there's a there's a, a chapter on on music and well-being um i know that over the last few years you've helped establish you know a kind of a a, a course in music and well-being at the university of sheffield and i feel it, for me that feels like a big direction of travel you know moving towards social prescribing more and more mm, mm. so oh, oh, there's just so much <laughs> we could talk about here. let's just talk about first of all what we mean by well-being yeah. If it's possible to have a, a neat definition. Well, the World Health Organization provided a definition, which is where oh, we can start, which is uh, that well-being is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So it, I like that definition in that it gives us um, not, uh, a state to uh, strive towards that isn't just I'm feeling well in that I'm not feeling ill. Well-being is about maximising the multiple facets of human experience uh, such that we feel good about each of them. And the World Health definition encompasses, uh, incorporates physical, mental and social when I looked at well-being in brass band members, which I did um, last year, I think that paper was published. Oh, interesting. That was my background growing up in Yorkshire, playing the trombone in the brass band. Oh, very proud. Very yeah. proud musical tradition in Yorkshire <laughs> yeah. and in a lot of other places in Wales, of course. Um, yes. Wonderful yeah, tradition yeah. there. So when when myself and Dr. Michael Bonshaw, who is a fellow choir leader, lovely chap, uh, were looking at... Um, getting reports from brass band players about how their uh, brass band life impacted on their well-being, we used five different prompts. We looked at physical, psychological, emotional, social and spiritual. Um, the main difference is there are to separate out psychological and emotional because in terms of psychological, I wanted people to be able to separate out things like stress and depression and anxiety, psychological states, from emotional so simply the highs and lows the the happiness and the sadness and whatever other emotion you wanted to talk about and also to include spiritual which mm. i think is a very underrepresented area of of well-being and it's it it's about uh, that feeling of being connected to something that isn't just social social is there to represent our connection to our society to our community but uh, the brass band players told us in many cases about feeling connected to something larger than themselves. And that would be the spiritual aspect, feeling spiritually settled and spiritually fulfilled by music performance. 
So it just it just shows how much there is going on because there's a, there's at least kind of three levels as the you know your individual engagement I suppose you know with the music and the musical experience and then there's the broader social aspect you know whether it's the brass band or, or the choir with whom you're singing but then absolutely then there's that kind of extra level that that music takes you somewhere else that gives you that that spiritual dimension and I guess that starts to explain why it is so powerful um, mm-hmm. and, and for me that the kind of extra layer with with singing is is just the fact that you are, you are singing songs and that songs are incredibly powerful um, and uh, in, in a in episode eight of the podcast I was speaking to Eric Whitaker um, the choral um, you know uh, composer and he said he writes a lot of instrumental music and he writes, you know, mainly choral music, but he said mm. it's really the choral music where he feels that he can kind of aim for the, you know, really aim for the heavens, really. He said there's something about when voices come together that just really elevates everything we've been talking about. Mm. Um, is that something you've kind of come across in, in your research? Well, definitely. The There is... It's, it's an effect that's been replicated multiple times that there is a, a unique impact um, psychologically and on the brain from hearing the human voice as opposed mm. to any other melodious sound, whether that's an instrument or uh, an animal producing um, melodic sound. There is something that captures our brain about hearing our own human voice. Um, so there's always going to be something special about singing, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and it's it's something that often elevates composers in, in the minds of others as well, is that if, if they're able to write beautifully for the human voice, then they have an extra level of understanding of the mm. complexion of music. I mean, if you think of all the the great composers, the vast, vast majority of them, from Bach to Mozart, Beethoven, they all wrote for the human voice. Yeah, I mean, of course. Constanza, Mozart's wife, Constanza, always, he wrote beautiful vocal music for her and and she always said that she felt he had a unique understanding of the possibility of the human voice for making music. Yeah, and just as we were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, like, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, you know, that how do you take this, how do you elevate this form even more? Well, let's, you know, introduce, introduce the, the you know, the chorus to it. And, and isn't there the something about the Ninth as well, that he's deaf by then? And course, there's, there's yeah. something about that chorus where I, when I always hear it, I think he's desperate to hear this. He's <laughs> desperate to push the human voice almost to its limit in a, in a desperate attempt to hear it. For me, this feels like a really, exciting time because a lot of the things we're talking about seem to be manifesting themselves in lots of ways you know I'm thinking for example about the uh, research and, and a lot of um, new initiatives around music and, and dementia with, with, with singing in particular mm-hmm. are there any particular areas that that you're aware of um, you know that, that feel kind of particularly exciting or you know in, in five or ten, ten years time what might the conversations around singing and well-being be about? Have you got any sense of where things might be might be going? Yeah, great question. So you're absolutely right. There's there's been a buzz for a little while about the the promise of of singing as part of uh, care for people who are living with dementia related illnesses, mm-hmm. and and not only the way in which that can provide one of the 
really important pathways for well-being when you're living with dementia, which which is sort of cruelly stripped away by the nature of that disease, which is the ability to have a social connection with other human mm. beings. It's such an isolating um, illness, and yeah. to 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 be able to um, interact in a way because you don't need to be verbal. Of course, singing just mm. sound with another human being doesn't have to be words is a way to establish a relationship with another person to to maintain a thread with the outer world to have a communicative experience and an interaction so there's there's so much possibility there to tackle many of the the difficult um well-being challenges that somebody mm. faces um throughout their journey living with dementia related illnesses but You've also got to consider um, the the physical um, um, promise of of singing and what it what it can provide for somebody. So I, as well as the work going on in dementia care, I would think in the next five years, I would be surprised if we didn't start to see some form of prescription going on for people with breathing difficulties. For singing. Yeah, well, we're, we're starting to see this at the moment where for people who are, are affected by long COVID. I don't know if you mm. saw the, the English National Opera um, initiative and there's quite a few people in that field. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, for again, that's one of the things that for, for me feels feels quite exciting. Like, you know, we're almost at the, at, just at the, at the cusp of, of exploring the possibilities. Yes, yeah. that, that really is. I used to uh, have great conversations with the with the staff at the Sheffield Hallamshire Hospital when I was involved in Sheffield uh, University there mm. and uh, Professor Ian Sabra in particular who's the head of immunology and he's a lung expert and in he was absolutely you know convinced of the, of the benefits of, of this mm. kind of um, music care for somebody who could have any sort of um, degree of breathing challenge to live with it could be asthma it could be COPD it could be um, anything really that mm. uh, that affects the ability to breathe it could even in this day of so many of us sitting you know slumped over having good posture absolutely Isn't that a wonderful yeah. thing to to yeah, encourage you know, to sing properly to to learn to engage the core to engage the diaphragm to elongate the throat to drop the shoulders all of these things. So I see breath and posture, spinal care being one of the, the future avenues where we'll hopefully see more and more support from proper randomised control trials, which are going on, you know, with places um, like the British Lung Foundation is supporting this, um, singing for breath, these kind of mm. organisations. Everything's moving in that direction. It takes time with proper randomised control trials to really, because you've got to make sure you know what you're talking about and that it's done properly. It's not just, you know, go away and sing, you'll feel better. For each person, what is the nature of their challenge and what is the kind of singing that will not only help them, but that will excite them? Because you want somebody to be able to be motivated to continue with this kind of therapy because that's when it'll work, when they want to do it day after day. So the the great thing about music on top of everything else is that it can be individualised for that person. Yeah, and you made such an important point there as well about, and this is why your work is so important and, and that of your peers, is that a lot of these things we kind of intuitively know if we've engaged with the singing experience about, oh, well, you know, it makes us feel good and we breathe and we relax. But if we're talking about working with specific groups, like you mentioned, like people with long COVID or with breathing difficulties or whatever, 
we have to, you know, it has to be properly informed. Yeah. And it can't be, let's just have a sing song and we'll all feel better. Right. Um, and, and that's why, you, that's just something, something I'm really, really interested in, you know. So um, I'm really, really clear when I run my singing groups, you know, I say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to um, medicalize it in a way. You know, I, I can tell people that, you know, singing is great for sense of community and, and, and catharsis and releasing your emotions. But I would never say, oh, it's going to help you, you know, to recover just what mm. I'm doing is going to help you recover f- from such and such. And I think I think th- this possibly is another area. Yeah. Um, of Well, of it's kind a part. Of, of growth. It's a part of it. You know, in, in many of the larger hospitals in the States now, if you had a stroke and were taken to one of these big medical centers like John Hopkins or Mount Sinai, within 48 hours of the immediate aftermath, you would be assigned a physiotherapist, a speech therapist, and a music therapist. Really? And so this is happening now in the States? Right. That music therapy is, it's it's not going to cure anything in of itself, but it's a really important team member. This has to be a team Mm. effort. You know, you wouldn't just say, oh, I'll, I'll just take the drugs and I'll skip the physio and I'll skip everything else, you know. I mean, why, why wouldn't you try ev- the best package? Why wouldn't you take everything that could possibly improve your well-being, especially when it gives you back a degree of control? You know, your doctor is going to prescribe the drugs. The physiotherapist is going to be in charge of the movement. You can begin to run your singing care you need to be advised you need as you were rightly saying James you need to have the right kind of information about what Mm. it is that will best help and you need to have the guidance and you may in early days need a real proper one one interaction with a trained therapist but music is something that you can go from intuitive to informed use for your well-being brilliant and I think that's just what what you're doing so well in your work Vicky so please Please keep, um, please keep, keep on keeping on. Um, I know you've got your website that being, you know, I, I imagine a lot of listeners will be interested to know more and to explore many of the strands that we've been discussing. So there's your your website, which is musicpsychology.co.uk. And there's, of course, your book, which I've mentioned. Um, you are the music. Um, are there any other um, kind of books or starting points or if people are interested in this mm-hmm. um, that you might point them towards other than your own website and your book which would be the first part of course <laughs> you're too kind <laughs> yeah so the website is an education blog essentially so there's never ever any advertising on there and it's only muggins here writing it and putting it together um, so you can feel that's a safe space where everything mm. is curated by me and you're not going to be taken off anywhere weird but there are links on there you know i provided so rather than hunting around in YouTube yourself, you can go to my blog and you will find there a list of nice academic talks on a range of subjects. So that's a, a place to start down that rabbit mm. hole if you would like to. Yeah, yeah, there's loads on there. I'd really recommend I mean, it. there's there's essentially, um, if somebody's interested in a particular aspect of well-being, more and more nowadays, you can find specific organisations that are involved in providing information as well as treatment um, for those conditions. I couldn't possibly name check them all, but it's a really good idea, James, that maybe I should start having a page where details can be there as a one-stop shop. Um, but 
Sorry, yeah. not, not wanting to create more work for you. But, no, it's, yeah. a, it's a great idea because <laughs> there are so many organisations, many of them local, but a lot of them national as well. Mm. Um, gosh, I, I feel like if I start name checking, that would be slightly unfair. Okay, so, but... so maybe go back to your website at some point in the future and there might be some more information there. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, so we have a podcast playlist where I invite each guest to contribute a track. Mm. that is important to them in some way mm-hmm. so what song can we add for you please may i have sitting <laughs> on the dock of the bay by otis redding you certainly may yeah tell, tell me why why that song in particular it's my favorite song uh, i know i shouldn't have Great, one experience psychologist but <laughs> no, throughout my life i just i was i i I'm drawn to his voice. I always have been for as long as I can remember. But that particular track is is just so haunting, so simple, so subtle, and so peaceful. And the whole mm. track itself, and from the opening crashing waves to the simple bass line, mm. if you just take in the imagery and the stillness of, I mean, I'm I'm a creature who's very happy when I'm near water. So I've always lived by a river or by the sea. So a track that has that is is mm. like the cherry on the top. Actually, got the audio. Yeah, there's not many tracks that use that kind of folio. You know, you've no. Blackbird by the Beatles and things like. But you're right. Exactly. Yeah, that's quite unusual for a pop song to have that. And I guess there's also a poignancy with that song. And that you know, was wasn't that the last song that Otis Redding recorded before he died? It's it's definitely one of the final tracks before yeah. his plane crashed into a bay and he was killed. Mm. So it's it's got. Oh, a, is that right? Oh god, I didn't know there was that extra layer of oh goodness. Yeah. So yeah. The, there's a very uh, there's a very poignant um, story behind it. Um, but it's just his voice. It's just like caramel on ice cream. It's just smooth as silk. Um, sweet, um, contrasting. It's 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 so emotive and so em- em- empathic for me. I could just I would wrap myself in his voice any day of the week, and I would be at peace. Right. Well, I shall add it to the playlist, and um, the link to the playlist uh, will be in the show notes, so you can listen to that song and um, and all the other the, the choices by everyone who's been on the podcast this series. So thank you. I'll add that and. It's always nice. I always go away and listen to the tracks from the guests and it really helps me to, you know, reconnect to old songs and, and connect to new ones. So thank you for that. Um, finally, um, Vicky, I also ask every guest, what life lesson can we take from the singing experience? So again, come at this from whatever angle um, you may choose. But yeah, what, what can we take away from this from the singing experience as a life lesson? I'm gonna I'm gonna say that it offers you a unique communicative channel. And that can be with your own soul, that can be with your own memories, and it, and it can also be with other people of all ages and of all stations in life, irrespective of where they are in the world. So as a uniquely human activity that connects us body and soul and species there is nothing simpler and there is nothing kinder and there is nothing more sweet than sharing your voice you heard it here from a music psychologist people 
Thank you so much, Victoria. That was just a beautiful, beautiful way to, to close the conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I just love that. There's nothing simpler or kinder or sweeter than sharing your voice. How wonderful. Thanks very much to Vicky for today's conversation. And if that, like me, has piqued your interest in music psychology and music in the brain, I really would recommend her website, Music Psychology. .co.uk and there's a whole range of resources there. It's a real treasure trove. So do check that out. And I would heartily recommend her book, You Are the Music. It's a fantastic introduction to some of the themes that we talked about today. And it really shines a light on the effect that music and singing has throughout our lives. In the show notes, you'll also find a link to Vicky's TED Talk on music and memory, as well as the podcast playlist where you'll find the choices by all of the guests from this series. There's some absolutely brilliant tracks on there, including Vicky's choice of Otis Redding's Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, so you can have a cup of tea, sit back and relax and enjoy that song. This is the penultimate episode of the podcast for Series 1, and I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you so much to everybody who's taken the time to get in touch with me, who's commented on one of my social media posts or sent me an email or a private message. It really means the world to me and it, it makes me so happy that the word is getting out there about singing and that quite a few people have said to me, I might actually start thinking about singing again, which is job done for me. You can find the link to all of my social media handles in the show notes. Do get in touch, it's lovely to hear from you. And I'll be back next time with another episode of This Is Why We Sing for another inspiring and insightful perspective on singing and what it means to be human. So thanks very much. Take care. See you next time. <laughs>